In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. I'd like for us to focus our prayer using some words of St. Josemaria. And with these words, have discover a goal for what we want to contemplate in the next few minutes. This is what he says. We may have asked ourselves at one time or another, how we can correspond to the greatness of God's love. We may have wanted to see a program for Christian living clearly explained. The answer is easy, and it is within the reach of all the faithful. To participate lovingly in the Holy Mass, to learn to deepen our personal relationship with God in the sacrifice that summarizes all that Christ asks of us. And now as we we try to pray, inspired by these words, the first statement that he makes is precisely what should always guide us in our relationship with Christ. We may have asked ourselves, how can we correspond to the greatness of God's love? The Christian life needs to be that, a desire to respond to a love that precedes us and is greater than anything we can imagine. But feeling that, maybe we feel it just as as an intuition. Maybe we've just heard about the greatness of that love without yet experiencing the, the power of it. However it may be, he says, well, What would be a a way of going after it? How could I say yes to God and his love in a more personal, in a more sincere way? What do I do? This is where I find what St. Josemaria says so incredibly helpful. The answer is easy, and it's within the reach of all the faithful. That means you and me, all of us. Not a few special people, not the, the elite of the Catholic Church, whoever those people are, but all of us, to participate lovingly in the Holy Mass. And that's what we want to try to do now in our meditation, to meditate on one moment in the Mass, so that through our contemplation and our prayer, it can be a little bit easier for us to lovingly participate in what St. Josemaria says is the summary of all that Christ asks of us. And that moment, that particular moment, happens right before you receive the Eucharist, when you go to Mass. You recall there's a moment where the priest, after he's broken the consecrated host, he elevates it so that you can see it. And he uses the words of St. John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. 
And then you respond, as you remember, with words from the gospel as well, but it's a different gospel, a different context, but nevertheless, words that are very, very powerful if we consider their original context, and that's what we want to do right now. And those words are, as you know, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Those are the words that we say in the Mass. And as you know, those are the words said by the Roman centurion in Capernaum, who had asked Jesus to come and heal his servant who was was very sick and on the point of death. Now, the background for this encounter between Jesus and this centurion, the background for appreciating in our prayer uh, the power of that faith, actually is the Old Testament, specifically the second book of Kings. In the second book of Kings, we are told the story of another military leader, this time a Syrian military leader by the name of Naaman, who's a general of the army. The second book of King tells us that Naaman, although he was not a Jew, he was not an Israelite at all, he was out in, in what is currently Syria, a general of the army there was kind of oppressing Israel at the time. Israel was a vassal of this kingdom. And it happened that Naaman, who was greatly esteemed by his king, he was a great general, he suffered leprosy. And his wife had acquired a Jewish slave girl, as was the practice in the Middle East at the time. And when this Jewish girl heard that her new master suffered leprosy, she told Naaman's wife, she said, only if my Lord could meet the prophet Elisha in Israel, he could be healed of his leprosy, surely. So Naaman, quite interested to be healed, spoke to the king. The king gave him all sorts of gifts and gold and documents and everything and sent him and a bunch of camels on their way to Israel to seek out the prophet Elisha. They meet with the king of Israel. A number of things happen. Finally, they make it to where Elisha lived, the prophet. And when they arrive there, Elisha doesn't come out. He, he sends out two messengers doesn't go in person. He sends two messengers to Naaman and tells Naaman to go bathe seven times in the river Jordan and he will be healed. Now, the reason why Elisha didn't go out is because Naaman was a Gentile and Elisha, who was a prophet and who was very, very keen on practicing rigorously the purity of the law, would not mix with a Gentile. He would keep himself separate. And Naaman wasn't very impressed with this. In fact, the book of Kings tells us, but Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, Wash and be clean? 
They reason with him. They try to say, look, it's so easy what he's asking you to do. Maybe you expected something different. You expected more. You expected him to come out. You expected him to touch you. Why don't you just do it since it's so simple? And so Naaman does, perhaps persuaded after such a long journey that what did he have to lose? He went, he bathed seven times in the river. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy and he was clean, healed. Now, the contrast with the Roman centurion is that he, uh, Naaman, expects Elisha to come to him. He expects Elisha to violate the purity laws and to touch his leprosy. Also, Naaman has no faith that something so simple, bathing in the River Jordan, could bring about such a miraculous effect. And before we, we turn to the Roman centurion, just to consider that lack of faith on Naaman's part, consider how it contrasts with the faith we are called to exercise in the Mass. That precisely something that appears so banal and ordinary, bread, wine, actually heals us and fills us with God. Perhaps more than we like, we are a bit of a Naaman when we go to Mass. We expect a little bit more. I'm not speaking about better homilies and better music. But I don't know, a more intense feeling, something more impressive. I don't know, a little bit more. We expect that. But maybe we need to go deeper, get off the surface of expectation, and say, no matter how poor the homily, no matter how rushed uh, the service, no, whatever, insofar as the priest does what the church intends, what was bread, while continuing to appear bread, becomes the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And the same is true of the wine. And when I receive it, the only limitation to the way in which that can actually affect a healing in me, unite me in God, the only limitation is my lack of desire or my sinfulness. So, turning back to the Roman centurion, when we contrast him with Naaman, we can see how great his faith was and how Jesus actually brings something new. We read in the Gospel of Luke, After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, he is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. 
But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Notice how the roles reverse. In the Old Testament, Naaman went to the prophet. In the New, the prophet goes to the centurion. Jesus is not concerned about whether or not he's going to defile himself by going into the house of a Gentile. As he's repeating over and over, he has come to seek the lost. He's come to go out and reconcile whoever is ready and willing back to God. Jesus is on the hunt. He's seeking us out. And it's actually the centurion who steps back and almost tries to protect Jesus from violating those purity laws. I don't, you don't need to do that. I didn't presume to come to you. He sends out friends before Jesus gets to his house. Perhaps the centurion was taken back by this openness of Jesus to him. The Roman knew, this Roman centurion knew the practices of the Jews. He knew that they would, that especially a prophet, especially a prophet with fame for healing, would by no means come to his house. But then to see that he was, to see that he was seeking him out, that openness, that merciful openness, surely that helped the centurion have the kind of faith that we see him display. And it's precisely in reaction to that that he says these words that we repeat every day or every time that we go to Mass. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You don't need to come into my house. I'm not worthy. I do not presume to come to you. Seeing to what extreme Jesus is willing to come to him, this is his reaction. Do you see how this biblical context sheds enormous light on how we are being encouraged to respond to Jesus' coming to us in the Eucharist? Because in a sense, the same thing happens. Jesus comes to us in spite of our weaknesses and our infidelities and our sins our coldness and our indifference. He doesn't wait for us to be perfect. He's not waiting for everything to be sorted in our lives. He comes. And he comes the same way he came to the Roman centurion. What would you like me to do for you? Ask of me. And the liturgy of the, of the church, the liturgy of the Mass is by having us say those words, is reminding us of this. Imagine the difference it would make in your life and in mine if we tried to be a little bit more intentional about living those words when we went to Mass. Praying in that moment in Mass. 
to try to put ourselves into the shoes of this Roman centurion so that his reaction becomes our reaction, so that his faith becomes our faith. To really perceive the generosity of Jesus, his goodness, his eagerness to come to us, that that the natural reaction is to say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. And the centurion doesn't stop there, of course. It moves him to an even deeper act of faith. He tells Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is why I didn't presume to you. And then St. Luke reports Jesus, the centurion's word. He says, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. Obviously, in the liturgy, we change those words a little bit. I'll come back to that point. But we change it instead of let my servant be healed, let my soul be healed. And then the centurion gives the reasoning that he uses to say what he's just said. For I also am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. This trust in the power of Jesus' words, that's the trust that we want to try to foster, to practice, to grow in when we participate in the Mass. Remember what St. Josemaria said at the beginning of our prayer. How can we respond to the greatness of God's love? I'll tell you how. It's very easy. Every single one of us can do it. Participate lovingly in the Mass. Have that personal relationship with Jesus. How can I do that? Think about the words that I'm saying. Where do they come from? What do they mean? That when I'm going to the Mass, I am taking inspired words of Scripture and enacting them in real time when I participate in the Mass. And what's implicit in them and what I can make very much intentional as I try to say them in faith is that, Lord, I believe that you have authority in the Word so that when the priest says those words, this is my body, at that moment he ceases being Father whoever and is Jesus, speaking with that same authority that the Roman centurion was talking about 2,000 years ago. An authority by which he not only transforms the bread and the wine, he makes his sacrifice on the cross present and available to us under the appearance of bread and wine. And all of that happens through the authority of Jesus' word, a word made present through the voice of the priest. And the church invites us to try ask for, to desire, the faith of that Roman centurion. A faith that is childlike, not because it's naive or silly, but childlike in its trust. He says, look, I know how authority works. I say to my soldiers, do this, and they do it. And why do they do it? Because they're the soldier and I'm the general. 
So he looks at Jesus and says, if you are a Messiah, if you are the Son of God, you have that same authority over all creation. That's the faith that you and I need to ask to increase. Lord, increase my faith. Because so often for me, it is hard to believe that you are in control. It's hard for me to trust that. To really rely on you. To look to you. So often I feel the need for my own reassurance. Reassurance in the approval of other people. Reassurance in some measure of success or getting ahead or not suffering or things going well or choose your own barometer of whatever success might be. Instead of turning to you, Lord, instead of wanting to please you, instead of wanting to listen to you, I doubt your authority. I doubt your power. We do, every single one of us. What's the response to admitting that? Asking for more faith. And not just asking for it and saying, well, I hope it happens, but asking for it as we freely try to say, how can I practice it? And right now we're considering a very practical way to practice in this specific moment in the Mass. To live this faith that isn't only that interior decision, it is also trust. Only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Just like the centurion, I trust that the world is in your hands, and I choose to put myself there as well. Now, just to go back to the words that we actually say at the Mass, the way in which we adapt them, as it were, to our circumstance, because we no longer talk about a servant or a slave, we talk about our soul. Only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. And it makes sense that we say soul and not slave. But just for our prayer, I, I don't, maybe this is forcing a little bit the biblical text, but I don't think so. Maybe we could also have the centurion's attitude towards our own soul. Because just as the centurion was asking Jesus to heal his slave because he had compassion and pity on his slave, so too, in a sense, we should be asking Jesus to heal our souls because we have compassion and pity as well. In other words, rather than frustration and judgmentalism and being upset and angry with ourselves, I'm so stupid, I'm this, I'm fed up with myself, that, that disappointment that manifests itself in discouragement and sadness and even resentment. Instead of all of that, maybe we need to also take advantage of these words in the Mass, the words of the Roman centurion, to react with humble compassion. Humble in the sense that we just recognize the illness and the dependency of my soul. That it needs to be healed. But to recognize that without the anger, without the frustration. Because that sort of anger, that sort of frustration, that sort of being fed up always comes from pride. And pride is like putting up a force field between us and God. His love ricochets off of it. It separates us from him. 
Whereas humility is that sincere lowering of the barriers, standing before a God in our neediness, in our brokenness, and saying, Lord, here I am. Heal me. In the same way that the Roman centurion, you know, the centurion could have maybe held back and said, well, you know, he's a Jewish prophet. He might reject me. What if he says no? You know, he's a Jew. I'm a Roman. Surely he won't pay attention to me. But no, he had that sincerity because he had compassion on a servant. And that same kind of sincerity and trust we need to have with regard to ourselves and with regard to others, of course, when we turn to our Lord in the Eucharist. And finally, you know, when we read the Gospel of Luke and also the other Gospels that, that narrate Jesus' encounter with the Roman centurion, we read it knowing who Jesus is. In that sense, we know much more than the other characters in the story, the other people who were standing around seeing these events unfold. And if you read it in that way, the surprise is how much the centurion knows about Jesus over and against everyone else who's standing around, including the apostles. Because the centurion, the outsider, treats Jesus literally like the Son of God someone who has the same kind of power and authority that Yahweh did. It's a striking thing about the story is that he seems to know what you and I should know. You and I should know that Jesus has that authority. You and I should be able to react in the same way and in that way, we see one of the specific ways in which Scripture interrogates us. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces to the center of our souls and says, do you believe? Are you willing to trust? Are you willing to follow me? Not only through the action of the Holy Spirit, who should always guide our reading of Scripture, but at certain moments, the words of Scripture themselves interrogate us. How could that centurion have that kind of faith? How could he know that? Which indirectly is a question for myself. Why don't I have that sort of faith? Knowing what I know. Having seen what I've seen, all the teaching of the church, the, the development over the centuries of the understanding of who Jesus is. And it's precisely because of what the centurion knows and how he acts on the basis of that knowledge that Jesus speaks those wonderful words of admiration. When Jesus heard what the centurion said, he was amazed at him. And turning the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. Jesus says that to those who followed him. He says that to you and me not so that we feel kind of upset or discouraged by the comparison, comparing ourselves to the centurion, but on the contrary, that we be encouraged to make his words our own. I'd just like us for us to, to end our prayer this evening, just with that simple question, what if I made the goal of 
trying to really focus on those words the next time I go to Mass, and the next time, and the next time, and to try to find my way into them without forcing it or without having unrealistic expectations of what I should think or feel, just find my own way. No one will do it for you and no one will do it as well as you if you don't do it yourself. And let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And perhaps without your even realizing it, without your even fully being aware, God will be drawing you closer and you will have a stronger faith, a greater trust, and the joy and the peace that always come from that deeper, more personal encounter with Jesus Christ. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.